Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. America's national parks are breathing spaces in a world in which such spaces are steadily disappearing, which is why more than 300 million people visit the parks each year. Now Terry Tempest-Williams, author of Refuge and When Women Were Birds and many other books, returns with The Hour of Land. It's a literary celebration of our national parks, an exploration of what it means they mean to us and what we mean to them. From the Grand Tetons in Wyoming to Acadia in Maine to Big Bend in Texas and more, Terry Tempest-Williams creates a series of lyrical portraits that illuminate the, illuminate rather, the unique grandeur of each place while delving into what it means to shape a landscape with its own evolutionary history into something of our own making. It's part memoir, part natural history, part social critique. The Hour of Land is a meditation and a manifesto on why wildlands matter to the soul of America. And we welcome uh, back to Access Utah, Terry Tempest-Williams. Thanks so much. Good morning, Tom. I'm thrilled to be here. And Terry Tempest-Williams joins us from the studios of KUER in Salt Lake City. Our thanks to the good folks uh, there at KUER. Um, I want to uh, get into uh, what you're going for, your goal with this book. Uh, I want to read a part of a quote from Jared Farmer um, in his review. He calls The Hour of the Land a poetic revision to the Organic Act of 1916. Um, and uh, he, he goes on to say that uh, you update enjoyment to spiritual renewal, specifies that public means more than white people, and insists on unimpaired means what it says. Does that kind of get into what you were going for? You know, I think as a writer, you know the the work from the inside out, and oftentimes it's the outside perspective, it's the readers that... Um, shed a light on on what it is I've really done. So my intent was to celebrate our national parks, our public lands, and in Utah, we view them as our backyard, something that I think in many ways we take for granted. Uh, What surprised me, Tom, was the shadow side of our national parks, the displacement of people, the politics, um, and that sent me on a different journey. And I I truly believe that if we are, are going to celebrate um, our public lands, our national parks in this centennial, then it deserves both our love and our assessment, critique. Um, you can't really have one without the other. Uh, and that's, I thought I was writing a book about national parks. In the end, I realized I've written a book about America mm-hmm. in, in both shadow and light. You you write that the creation of America's national parks has been the creation of myths, and we all grew up with these. For example, you you cite Yellowstone, uh, Yellowstone. The the, you know, the American Indians were scrubbed out of the picture, at least for a while. Yeah, I was told that there were no Indian people here. That they were superstitious. That Old Faithful and the fumaroles and the steaming waters uh, was a place that they treaded lightly on. You know. And that was a myth. And I think with any myth, you have to ask the question, who benefits? Um, The early architects of the National Park Service wanted the pastoral vision. They wanted deer. They wanted elk. Um, They did not want Indians, and they didn't want wolves. And they went about removing them from that scene. And today we know that's not true. It's it's Mm -hmm. been the hunting grounds of and the sustenance and spiritual grounds of, of many Native peoples in many of our national parks. So the, the battle, uh, I suppose, be, becomes ongoing. It's, it's the battle over the, over the myth, what, the meaning. And I think that's where, you know, 
one of my mentors and certainly a native son of Utah, Wallace Stegner, talked about how our national parks are America's best idea. I would argue that our national parks are an evolving idea. And nowhere is that more beautifully uh, seen than in Bears Ears National Monument, the proposal before President Obama now, when we have over 25 different tribes, um, Ute, Hopi, Zuni, Navajo among them, asking President Obama to use the Antiquities Act of 1906 and see these lands adjacent to Canyonlands National Park um, as sacred, as their home ground, as landscape that that holds the, the bones of their ancestors, their medicines, their histories. And I I hope that he will hear them. And I think this is the evolving idea that our parks are both about landscape and people. But as we know, people plus place equals politics. And in the state of Utah, it's contentious. Yeah, it certainly is. Um, I wonder what, that gets me into my next question, which is, uh, you set out to do one thing, this book, you're surprised it ended up being another thing. And part of that was, it, you know, it's a story of ourselves, a story of, of America. The, the shadow part that you talked about, were you surprised by that, that that came out as much as perhaps it did? You know, I, I was, and I wasn't. I mean, certainly we know our history as Americans. We know that Gettysburg is a celebration, and honoring, and I, I use that word celebration um, carefully. You know, it's a remembrance of, of the worst day in America's history of, of Americans being lost, brothers fighting brothers. Um, but until a decade ago, maybe less, you could go to the Gettysburg National Battlefield and never hear the word slavery. So again, the myths that are perpetuated, you know, you would go to Gettysburg and it was about generals, it was about strategies, it was about artillery, but nowhere was it about the root cause of slavery and injustice. Uh, now that story is being told. So again, this evolving idea, the the heartbreak to me and the illumination is that uh, the realization that the Civil War has never ended. And there was one moment where my husband Brooke and I and the writer Rick Bass, um, who you know from Logan, who got his English degree there, uh, we were talking to some reenactors, and they were Confederate soldiers who were loading up the munitions to reenact this battle by Pickett's Charge. And I was serious when I asked them, you know, what were the causes of the Civil War? As a Westerner, I thought it was about the South, the North, that it had little to do with us. That was my ignorance, when in fact the Civil War was largely fought for the West to see if slavery would continue um, onward. And this uh, reenactor looked at me and said, if you think I'm going to say the word slavery, you're mistaken. He said, this is about states' rights. This is about our own sovereignty. This is about... uh, the federal government interfering with our land. And I thought that sounds very familiar. And then he said, slaves, guns, it's the same issue, just different items. Hmm. And that's pretty chilling. Mm-hmm. Wow. So the, the, the interpretation becomes critical. It's, you know, that's, it's a battle over interpretation. It's a battle over what, it, what the meaning is. I'm not sure I would use the battle, Tom. I would say it's a conversation. 
And we're having that conversation in our own state over public lands. We have a governor. We have a congressman, Rob Bishop, who would like to take the public out of public lands. And I think there are those, not just in our state, but in the country, that are saying our public lands or our public commons. And nowhere is that conversation more heightened than in our national parks. I was just in Yosemite two weeks ago to hear President Obama give his historic talk there about our public lands. Uh, There had not been a president of the United States in Yosemite National Park since 1962 when President John F. Kennedy spoke. And it was very, very moving about how our national parks allow us to be our deepest and highest selves. And he talked about, as a young man, you know, going to, um, actually to Yellowstone with his mother the first time when he had come to the mainland from Hawaii. He was 11 years old. And he talked very movingly saying, I saw a moose on the edge of a pond. You know, I, we turned the corner and there were deer in the meadow. And I saw a mother bear and her cubs. He said, this changes you. And he said, our national parks, uh, allow us to see each other in a broader light. And he said, more importantly, it allows us to see America in a deeper light. And his final statement was, it reminds us that there is something bigger than ourselves. Mm. And I think that's the power of our public lands and specifically our national parks. We are not the only species that lives and breathes and dreams on Uh, Earth. You use the words in the book, you use interdependence, and you use the word humility, and, uh, you know, similar similar words. And you, you, you say you, you prefer to think of this as a conversation. That's, that's hopeful, isn't it? Are you hopeful? I am hopeful. And again, this evolving idea that in 1916, Stephen Mather, the first director of the National Park Service, you know, he was concerned about how do we get funds for our national parks, in the same way that our current director, John Jarvis, is concerned about how are we going to get the funds. But, you know, Mr. Mather was a millionaire. He he received his wealth from borax, soap, 20 mules strong. When he was thinking about Yosemite, he was worried if Mrs. Astor would have a comfortable place to stay. And hence, you know, the Awani Hotel was built. Today, fast forward 100 years, the Awani Hotel is no longer allowed to be named, ironically, after the very people that were displaced. Now it's in the courts um, over trademark and corporate sponsorship and corporate control. So now it's called the Majestic Hotel. But conversely, you know, you had those concerns of 1916. And now in, say, 2012, we have a black president who was a community organizer, who in 2012 honored another community organizer, Cesar Chavez, and created the Cesar Chavez National Monument. So again, an evolving idea. And I do find that hopeful. Mm. Just last week, Stonewall created as the latest national monument to honor gay rights and the struggle that took place there. I find that hopeful, and it's all part of a conversation uh, that I think in this country we are hungry to have. I want to, to pause just briefly and, and uh, talk about Gettysburg, go back to Gettysburg. I was surprised that you included Gettysburg, that you had been going back, I guess, you know, time and again. 
Uh, Gettysburg, of course, is is part of the national park system, but I guess I was expecting, you know, Canyonlands and Grand Teton. And uh, so, why did why do you keep going back to Gettysburg? Well, actually, I had never been to Gettysburg until I started thinking about this book. Oh. Uh, and again, you know, I think as Westerners, when we think of the national park system, we do think of Canyonlands, Arches, Grand Canyon, Yellowstone, Grand Teton, and our big Western lands parks. Um, but the Park Service is full of over 408 national park units, and Gettysburg National Battlefield is one of those, as is Alcatraz, as is, you know, um, Seneca Falls, where women, you know, uh, suffragettes uh, signed their own uh, Bill of Rights. So it's it's our history, both natural, cultural, as well as political. And I love that. Hmm. It's fascinating to, to, to you know encourage people to read read all the book. The, the the chapter in Gettysburg is particularly fascinating, at least it was to me. Um, the I don't know what you call them, the reenactors, the guides. Uh, right. there, there's a rigorous test. They have to know everything, and, uh, and very few of them actually pass the test and, and get to become guides. Yeah, who knew? Um, I. You know, I think a few years ago, only two people passed and thousands apply. And uh, there's no doubt they carry their own points of view, but they have to know, you know, how much it costs to exhume a body of a Southern soldier to take him home to the Southern landscape. Uh, You know, those kinds of details. And what I learned is that every park has its loyalists. And, you know, we know that in Utah and... um, that was fascinating to me. And it's also, in many ways, what surprised me, it's a book about subversives. You know, John D. Rockefeller was a, sur- a subversive. He serendipitous, what's the word? Sera- Serendipitously? Yeah. No, surreptitiously. Oh, surreptitiously, okay. <laughs> uh, bought up the lands in the Jackson Hole Valley under the Snake River Cattle Company, or land company, um, with Horace Albright, who was the director of the park, uh, Yellowstone. It wasn't until later that the Cowboys got wind and he had to come clean. And it took two, three decades for all of the land that the Rockefellers bought to finally be absorbed into a national monument. And Mr. Rockefeller finally had to say to FDR, either you take these lands or I'm giving them to the developers. And, you know, as we see here in Utah, uh, it was met with great resistance. Um, There was a stampede right through the center of, of the national park. And yet now, 50 years later, I can't imagine anyone, including the very uh, governor uh, who opposed the National Monument in the 50s and 40s, that could say Grand Teton National Park was a bad idea. Hmm. Uh, are you talking about Cliff Hansen? I am talking it, about Cliff Hansen. Yeah, tell me a little bit was, more about Cliff Hansen. Well, he was um, a senator. He was the governor of the state. And when he died in his 80s, he said... I was wrong. I was on the wrong side of history. And when my buddies and I, you know, stampeded in protest uh, Grand Teton National Park with our cattle, uh, we were wrong. And he said, I'm glad that I've lived long enough to say Grand Teton National Park is the best thing that happened to the state of Wyoming. Hmm. Now, when I first was reading about Cliff Hansen, my mind went immediately to Clive and Bundy. Uh, you know, this is a rally. We're, we're rebelling against the the federal government. We're we're opposing this, and then it took a twist that I hadn't I hadn't known the history. Cliff Hansen, you know, later in life said, "Oh, I was totally wrong. It was uh, this is this is a great thing." I'm not sure. I, 
I would compare the two, but I the sentiments are certainly there. Um, you know, that's a, a complicated conversation, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, Cliven Bundy is in jail. Uh, he didn't pay his grazing rights. And, you know, I think uh, Cliff Hansen has a distinguished career in public service as a senator and as a governor. Now, maybe Cliven Bundy will become the governor of Nevada, and I will be very... Um, filled with admiration if that's the case. The Bundys are relatives of mine. Uh, But I think, you know, these are the kinds of conversations that are so contentious and we're right in the heart of it. And I really feel Utah's ground zero. Hmm. Another parallel, and, you know, there there are, as you point out, there are dangers in in creating these parallels or thinking about these parallels. But uh, the president used the Antiquities Act in that case, I think in a, in a, way that had not quite been used before. It had been used for very specific sites, right? And then the president in this case used it for a larger territory. That's right. The Antiquities Act uh, was largely used in the past for archaeological sites. And Franklin D. Roosevelt, relative to Teddy Roosevelt, uh, saw a broader usage of that. And that has been used continually um, over time as a precursor to national park status. We see that in in arches and canyonlands as well. So um, the state of Wyoming reacted, and they passed a law that the Antiquities Act cannot be used again in the state of Wyoming. And I know some of the critiques of the Bears Ears National Monument proposal is the fear that that might bring that kind of ire to the state. Uh, But again, this is the conversation. They're having the same conversation in Maine over the North Woods, uh, the advocates for um, Maine's Woods National Park wanted to go the route um, of Congress, of full support of their delegation, but that didn't happen. And so now they're advocating for a national park or a national monument through the Antiquities Act, and it's looking quite hopeful. So we're we're right in the thick of things in this centennial, and I I think it will be fascinating to see what President Obama chooses to do. He, his legacy now is as our conservation president. He, his, the land that has been set aside for protection exceeds uh, Theodore Roosevelt's uh, legacy, which mm. many people don't realize. Yeah, yeah, I didn't realize that. Uh, so you, you attended the president's speech. Uh, um, I'm talking personally, I, I assume, but maybe I'll ask you to read the tea leaves. Do you think he will, before he leaves office, create a Bears Ears National Monument? You know, of, of course, how would I ever know? No one can know but the president and his closest uh, allies. But he did say, we're not done yet. And I do think he's very mindful of Native people and people of color and this wider, broader expansion of our national parks to include displaced people. It would be a beautiful blessing and healing to create Bears Ears National Monument as a healing between the tribes and the United States government and the National Park Service. So I am very hopeful. And the tribal members themselves have been eloquent in their plea and proposal. Let's take a break. Uh, We'll come back with more with Terry Tempest-Williams, author most recently of The Hour of Land. Uh, She joins us from KUER Studios. More following this break. 
Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members. And support for science reporting on Utah Public Radio comes from the Utah State University Ecology Center, providing training opportunities for today's science communicators, one story at a time. And Utah Humanities, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement online at utahumanities.org. Markets, the theory goes, play no favorites. Theories, however, are just that. The system's rigged, and it's to my benefit. I don't think that's a good thing, but it is. I'm Kai Rizdal. Americans feeling not so great about the economy. The Marketplace Edison Research Poll, next time on the program. Join us tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. I'm joined by Terry Tempest-Williams, author most recently of The Hour of Land. Uh, it's exploration of our national parks uh, and much more. Uh, she joins us from the studios of KUER in Salt Lake City. Uh, you can join this conversation if you'd like. We're opening the phone lines here at 1-800-826-1495. one 826 1495 Toll free. Our email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Terry Tempest-Williams, many striking things in the book. One that really stood out to me, uh, you're talking about Gettysburg, and you're talking with your son from Rwanda. People may not know you have a son from Rwanda. So he's from Rwanda, and he asks you, what is a civil war? Yeah, I was so shocked. Which is striking. I was really stunned. Uh, Louis... And, you know, these terms aren't used today, but I will use them because he used them in the book. Um, You know, the Rwandan genocide in 1994 was largely perceived as a civil war between the Hutus and the Tutsis. Louis is a Tutsi, a Congolese Tutsi. And, as you know, over a million people were murdered, uh, largely Tutsis and moderate Hutus, by the Interhamwe, which were the Hutu extremists. We, as Westerners, uh, largely saw this as a civil war. So to have Louis say, what is a civil war? You know, and he speaks six languages, and he was thinking civil. You know, how can a war be civil? And, you know, a lot of the folklore is that people would would take their carriages out, their horses, and they would watch the battlefields. Um, And the generals were often drinking tea, but I think the the larger conversation that we ended up having is that no war is civil. And um, and usually the people that we are at war with are the closest to us. And, and then the conversation became even deeper, saying that the first act of aggression is the war against ourselves. So these, again, Tom, are the kinds of conversations that our national parks allow us to have. Uh, we had that as we were sitting in the cemetery overlooking uh, one of the great battlefields in, in in Gettysburg. And it led to a conversation about an art installation called A Million Bones that took place two years prior where um, two artists uh, made a call for bones made out of paper mache, out of wood, out of clay, to commemorate all the genocides that have occurred around the world through time. 
And many people don't realize that from the Capitol to the Washington Monument, the, the mall was covered in white bones. Wow. Wow. Uh, I wonder, so leaving that behind in part, but going to today, it, it just, we just seem so divided and, and so polarized. And I, I wonder if you, if you have hope that that can, that gap can be narrowed, we can, we can be unified and, and does public land, do public lands have a, have a role there? You know, I think it's so important to remember history and I just returned from Ireland, and I was in Northern Ireland in, in Belfast, and I had the opportunity at Queen's University to listen to former Senator George Mitchell talk about the Good Friday Peace Agreement that was signed in 1998. And as as our listeners know, you know, Northern Ireland was a site of tremendous conflict and bombing. Over 3,000 people were killed during what they call the Troubles. And you go to Belfast and you see these murals that are now murals of peace. And you listened to uh, Senator Mitchell. And, you know, he said that when people are afraid, when fear and anxiety are fostered and uh, whipped up by those in power, that's when conflict occurs. And I think we see that in our in the United States right now, who are anything but united. I think when we see um, Brexit and what just happened with um, in the UK pulling out from the EU, you know, right now Europe is is extremely nervous about what this portends. And then we have Donald Trump, you know, landing in his private jet in Scotland, saying this is great for my business. Um, it's terrifying. And I think that what happened in the U.K. is a, a real warning for what could happen here in the States based on um, people's fear and anxiety. I think in times of fear, we have to really um, look at our history and look at our future, and especially our young people. It was the young people in Ireland that, were, that felt most betrayed because the young people in the U.K. want to be part of, of a united Europe, and now they are not. And they're the ones that lose. What do you think the solution is? You know, this this election is just so extraordinary, and in and in a lot of ways, not in a good way. I don't know what the answers are, um, but I know that engagement is central. That we have to speak out. That we have to exercise our vote, and that begins at home. I think we have to take risks. There are costs to those risks. But I think, you know, what's the cost if we do nothing? So engagement to me is always the key, and it begins in our own county commissions and our own town councils and, uh, again, conversation mm-hmm. and respect that we, we can have differing views, but we need to listen. So I guess I come down on conversation and listening. And listening, I think that's a key. I was I was just thinking about that. Uh, I think this was on your Facebook page. I don't know if you put this up or, or put this up from somebody else. It talked about Senator Mitchell and his key part in the the Good Friday Accords. Uh, and and the the phrase was, "He must have had iron pants because he was able to sit there through all of that and and listen." I love that, don't you? Yeah. He told a great story 
Um, and actually, it was repeated uh, in Dublin by the Secretary General of Foreign Affairs, and it, it, it went viral, so to speak, across Ireland. And what Senator Mitchell, someone said, why did you come back? It's hopeless. We're never going to figure this out. And he said, you know, uh, I was in America, and I went to the opera, and I love the opera because I know exactly the conversations that are going to be had. I know the songs that are going to be sung, and I have it memorized, and there's no surprises. So for me to come back to Ireland, I know exactly the songs you're going to sing. I know <laughs> how this is going to end, and I'm happy to sit here forever until you change that story. Mm. And I think we are in the process of changing our stories, and that is not easy, and that requires listening it requires good will and good faith, and it also requires our humility that we may not know the answers and faith that we may not know the outcome. But clearly where we are now isn't working. And, and I think, again, back to our national parks, uh, our institutions are no longer working for us. And so it's a time of, of both contention and great promise, and what is required is creativity and imagination. Mm-hmm. You just joined us. We're talking with Terry Tempest Williams, uh, author of uh, many books, of course, uh, acclaimed author, and uh, author most recently of The Hour of Land. And uh, we have her with us for the hour. Very grateful she's spending the hour with us. Uh, you can join this conversation at 1 800 826 1495, toll free 1 800 826 1495, or by email to upraccess at gmail.com. Upraccess at gmail.com. Uh, um, I wonder if you'd uh, read us a passage from the book. I, I selected a um, passage where you get lost in Timpanogos Cave, as a, you were very young at the time. I love Timpanogos Cave, don't you? I, I, I love it. Uh, and I think I think this struck me because I, I had just, uh, for the first time, gone through Minnetonka Cave in, uh, near, in near Bear Lake and had a, I mean, not the same experience you had, but, uh, but some similarities. Uh, I wonder if you'd read this first. Of course. But it was standing inside Timpanogos Cave, a national monument, as an eight-year-old child that marked me. We hiked up the steep mountain trail that rises a thousand feet from the valley floor in a short mile and a half. We were hiking with our church group from Salt Lake City, just an hour north. We reached the entrance of the cave and were ushered in by a park ranger. Immediately, the cool air locked inside the mountain enveloped us, and we wore it as loose clothing. Immense stalactites and stalagmites hung down from the ceiling and rose up from the floor declaring themselves teeth. We were inside the gaping mouth of an animal, and we were careful not to disturb the beast. We passed through Father Time's jewel box in the Valley of Sleep, traversing the cave on a narrow, constructed walkway above the floor so as not to disturb its fragility. But it was the great heart of Timpanogos Cave that captured my attention. When everyone else left the charismatic form, I stayed. I needed more time to be closer to it to watch its red-orange aura pulsating the cavernous space of shadows. I wanted to touch the heart, run the palms of my hands on its side, believing that if I did, I could better understand my own heart, which was invisible to me. I was only inches away, wondering whether it would be cold or hot to the touch. It looked like ice, but it registered as fire. Suddenly, I heard the heavy door slam and darkness clamp down, The group left without me. I was forgotten. 
alone, locked inside the cave. I waved my hand in front of my face. Nothing. I was held in a darkness so deep that my eyes seemed shut even though they were open. All I could hear was the sound of water dripping and the beating heart of the mountain. I don't know how long I stood inside Timpanoga's cave before our church leader realized I was missing, but it was long enough to have experienced how fear moves out of panic toward wonder. Inside the cave, I knew I would be found. What I didn't know was what would find me, the spirit of Timpanogos. Hmm. To this day, my spiritual life is found inside the heart of the wild. I do not fear it. I court it. And when I'm away, I anticipate my return. Needing to touch stone, rock, water, the trunks of trees, the sways of grasses, the barbs of a feather, the fur left behind by a shedding bison. Do you want me to continue? Uh, no, I think that I think that's good. You go on to quote uh, uh, Wallace Stegner, um, but I uh, it st- struck me that that uh, fear moved to wonder, at least for you. It, you know, for some, that fear would go to panic and <laughs> you know, full blown meltdown. And luckily for you, the the church leader realized uh, pretty quickly and, and came back. Uh, when I was in Minnetonka Cave recently. Uh, you know, I didn't have the same experience because I was still with the group, but the tour guide uh, turned out all the lights. And wow. it was so pitch black. And then I started thinking, what if this were a real situation? When, how would we possibly find ourselves out? And, and then he turned back the lights. Uh, but, but that idea of, of wild, you said wild, this idea of wild is important to you. And, and it's, it's a positive to you. And I connected that up with, uh, maybe you could tell me this story. You're you're in the Grand Tetons with your father, and you hear a bear horn coming down the uh, down the down the trail. You, you meet a you meet a guy in a Harvard shirt. <laughs> tell, tell me that story. Oh, it was great. Uh, well, it, you know, maybe our family is strange, but on my father's 80th birthday, you know, we were all like many families. We were in the Tetons celebrating his birthday. We hiked up to. Grandview Peak. We came down. We were in the parking lot, just kind of cooling off. And a grizzly walked into the parking lot and stood upright. And we stood up. We were all so excited. And then, you know, the bear got back down on all fours and ran into the forest. But it wasn't, you know, the bear was not met with fear. We were met, it was met with awe. So, you know, we're a family that loves wildness. And uh, we also knew the statistics that, you know, a party of three rarely gets attacked by a grizzly. Anyway, my father and I were uh, years before walking up Taggart Lake, and we heard these bell sounds. We heard this horn honking, you know. And Dad was just going, "What on earth?" And around the corner comes this guy that literally looks like a one-man circus <laughs> instead of a hiker. And you're right; he's wearing a Harvard T-shirt. And my father just said, "You know, good God, man." What what are you doing? You know, I've walked this trail for 70 years, and I've never seen a bear yet. Um, cut the horn. And, you know, guy, the guy was just terrified, and we had a conversation with him, and, and then we went on our way, and Dad turns around, and he goes, and by the way, if I were you, I wouldn't advertise where you went to school. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that's my father, direct. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, you know, I was, that, when I was reading that story, I was thinking, I might have been that guy, you know, in the Harvard shirt, you know, because, you know, it's, uh, I guess your family has a high tolerance for, 
for 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 wild others would not uh, i guess my question is what what is it about wild i guess not not only for you but for all of us but you know it's so sad as we're talking you know um many of of our listeners will be aware of of bear 399, this grand matriarch of, of most of the grizzlies in Grand Teton National Park. Many of you have seen her. And, you know, she's given birth to 610. These are the numbers the biologists give them. This year she gave, she's almost 20, she's over 20 years old. This year she gave birth to one cub, a white-faced cub. It looked like a ghost, this little beautiful being with a white face. and And this cub was just hit by a car last two weeks ago. It was actually on the mm. summer solstice. Um, hit and run at night. And and someone noticed that she, in her grief and despair, pulled her cub uh, off the highway at Pilgrim Creek and stayed with her cub until she was certain that it was gone. and And then... She buried him, as it were, and then has retreated up into Pilgrim Creek in her grief. You know, again, Tom, we are not the only species that live and breathe and dream and grieve on the planet. That, to me, is wildness. And and that's the humility you're talking about, I believe. Yeah, that. and, you know, I don't blame the person who was driving at night and, and couldn't see this little white ghost bear, but... On the other hand, you know, we're all complicit. And, uh, you know, it does beg the question, what do we value? Do we really want to delist the grizzly when I just read 66 grizzlies have been killed by cars? Do we really want to delist the grizzly and stop protecting this magnificent beast when climate change is, is creating these unknowns? And maybe, you know, if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to read Stegner's paragraph. Oh, yes, go ahead. Because I think he addresses this. And keep in mind, this was in 1955. Quote, It is a better world with some buffalo left in it. A richer world with some gorgeous canyons unmarred by signboards, hot dog stands, superhighways, or high-tension lines, undrowned by power or irrigation reservoirs. If we preserved as parks only those places that have no economic possibilities, we would have no parks. And in the decades to come, it will not be only the buffalo and the trumpeter swan who need sanctuaries. Our own species is going to need them too. It needs them now. Hmm. That's Wallace Stegner, uh, quoted by Terry Tempest Williams uh, from her book, uh, The Hour of Land. By the way, that's, I believe, from... Collection of essays. Uh, at the time, uh, the, the fight was on uh, against Echo Park Dam. That's right, and it was a book called "This Is Dinosaur," where a group of writers and photographers uh, and scientists came together to fight that dam. And the di- the dam was not built, and we have Dinosaur National Park with the free running rivers of the Green and the Yampa. And I would really honor Steve Trimble and Kirsten. Uh, Anyway, from Tory House Press, okay. uh, mm-hmm. who just have, have created another anthology um, in support of Bear's Ears uh, called Red Rock Stories. So this is an ongoing tradition, I think, of, of writers and photographers and biologists advocating on behalf of, of the wild. 
Let's uh, take another break when we come back more with Terry Tempest Williams. This is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. If you're asking yourself why your customer isn't buying your product or service, then maybe you don't know your customer. Excellent companies have regular dialogues with their customer. Customer relationships and service should be a part of every employee's responsibility. For example, a hospital system recently trained its housekeeping staff, the people who clean the patient's rooms, on how to better listen to patients because they're there with the patient. Your value is defined by your customers, not your marketing people or strategic planners. Customers tell us why they buy, and we just have to listen. Create excellence in your company by really listening to your customers and knowing how to bring value to them. The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We have with us uh, for another 10 minutes, Terry Tempest Williams. She's author of Refuge, When Women Were Birds, and uh, many other books. By the way, the website is coyoteclan.com. Good to check that uh, out. The latest book is The Hour of Land. And you're welcome to join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Um, we are and I would add Kirsten Allen and Steve Trimble with Red Rock Stories. Yes. That lagged mind. Okay, okay. All right. Red Rock Stories, uh, Stephen Trimble and uh, Kirsten Allen. I had looked it up in, as well, so I was going to. So you, you got it. Um, I wonder if you would uh, read another passage uh, from the book. Uh, your, your chapter on Canyonlands consists of letters. So letters to various people. And you begin with a letter to Ed Abbey. Yeah, each chapter or each essay that represents a national park focuses on a national park or monument. I wanted to find a form that um, honored the form and uniqueness of the landscape itself. And as you know, Brooke and I live in Castle Valley. And when I'm home in the Colorado Plateau, adjacent to Canyonlands and Arches, I write letters. So this chapter is a series of letters, and this is a letter to Ed. Abby. Water creates civilization. And this is an excerpt, I should say, um, halfway through the letter. Water creates civilization. I see wilderness as water, our aquifer as human beings that ties us to the whole of this planet, the water that allows us to drink deeply from the source of community that comprises all life, not just the culture of our own species. I wonder, Ed, at this point in time, especially in the United States of America, if we are creating civilization or culture. I suspect the true answer is that we are creating both, and our task is to learn the difference. And so, dear Ed, I thank you. Thank you for leading us to the maze, where the heart of it remains unknown, where both ecstasy and danger exist side by side in Canyonlands. This is a landscape that should not be sold, nor can this strange, difficult, complicated maze of human thought and action regarding the wild be quelled. Your photograph is on my desk. Your books are on my shelves. Your presence has entered our bloodstream as a patriot with vision. We will carry your example of sacred rage with joy and perseverance and remember your words. Speak your words. Quote, I will not. 
I will never surrender. I will fight through to the finish, whatever the outcome. I will not quit. I will not betray and desert the best thing in my life. No, no, I will not surrender. Earth is the place for love. This past summer, a group of 10 students from the Environmental Humanities Graduate Program at the University of Utah participated in the class called The Ecology of Residency. On a hot Sunday afternoon, the students met with Ken Slight at Pat Creek Ranch. They sat in a circle in the shade of cottonwood trees and listened to stories about you and the Monkey Ranch gang. As Ken was speaking, one of the students interrupted him and asked what it meant to be an environmentalist. Ken paused and looked directly at the young woman. To be an environmentalist, he said, is to be engaged in life. And then he told them stories of floating down Glen Canyon before it was dammed. He exhorted them to help take the dam down with their monkey wrenches. The students smiled. They were witnessing Seldom Seen Smith from the monkey wrench gang in the flesh. And then Ken said, I'm almost 80 years old. I've got a lot of secrets. I don't want to die with them. He looked down at his dusty work boots and was quiet for a long time. The monkey wrench is not a symbol of destruction. Ed told me right here on this ranch, the monkey wrench is a symbol of restoration. It's symbolic of your own talents. That's how you are going to fix the world, with your own gifts and talents. Shortly before my brother Steve died on January 21, 2005, he gave me an old monkey wrench that he'd found in an antique shop. My brother was a pipeline contractor who worked the kind of backhoes, bulldozers, and trucks that the monkey wrench gang sugared. But he was also an environmentalist, albeit a reserved one, who loved desert solitaire in the Red Rock Desert of southern Utah. He also loved me, his sister, an activist writer. This gift was his acknowledgement that although we went about our lives differently, our hearts were in the same place, a shared love for all that is wild. I tell you these last two stories, Ed, because your influence is an ongoing correspondence, that your words can be read and reread and read again by each generation is more than hopeful. It is revolutionary. With love, Terry. It's part of a letter to Ed Abbey. It's uh, part of the chapter on Canyonlands from the book The Hour of, of Land. I was interested, in that, that's quite the picture, the students there with Ken Slight. Um, and it made me wonder, what what does mucky wrenching mean today? And especially maybe seen through the eyes of, of the young people who are coming into an awareness of the issues. I love this generation and they are fierce and compassionate at once they're action oriented Um, they're both working in the systems and changing them and working outside the systems and pushing them and whether it's acts of civil disobedience whether it's Tim to Christopher buying up oil and gas leases as an act of civil disobedience or whether It's rising canyon tide in Canyonlands, Sarah Stock and and Lauren Wood and and Katie Savage. You know, I just have utmost respect for the work that they're doing. And I think the most important thing, Tom, the monkey ranch, you know, is for each of us to find our ranch 
in our own ways, each in our own time, with the gifts that are ours, with the work that we hold. And that's where I find my hope and faith. I guess that would include you purchasing leases? You know, Brooke and I feel that is our monkey wrench. Um, And we are in compliance with the law, even as we challenge it. We have not received the leases that we bought on February 16th, but we're hopeful. And uh, we, our intent is to keep it in the ground until science can show us that um, these fossil fuels are worth more above ground given the cost of climate. And really, the other people that were bidding with us on that day who's whose leases are in hand, um, they have no intention of of drilling for oil right now either until the price of oil goes up. So, you know, I think we're looking at science. We're looking at alternatives. And um, as Americans, we have that right, again, to look at another story, um, to not hold on to the myths that are killing us. And again, you have we have to ask the question, who benefits if our old stories and old myths are not challenged. And you, you, it comes to that level then, you think, a myth, because they're, they're certainly two very different visions, when you, you know, maybe overall, but then thinking of, you know, Canyonlands, Greater Canyonlands. But, you know, I have to believe that the one story that is carrying us is we want to be engaged citizens. We want to have beautiful communities. And part of having beautiful communities is having beautiful landscapes that remind us where the source of our power lies um, beyond ourselves. And in that regard, I do think it's spiritual. And I think that is, again, our evolution as a species. Just have a couple of minutes left. I wonder... Having gone through this experience now, I guess each book is an experience, right? Uh, so the Hour of Land, what's, what has that done for you or to you? What do you, what do you come away with? I'd love to, to share just these last two paragraphs because I think that answers your question. All right. We the people have made mistakes. We have made mistakes in our relationships with those who came before us and the land that holds their histories. We have made mistakes in how we have managed and misunderstood the wild. But after spending a lifetime immersed in our national parks, I believe we are slowly learning what it means to offer our reverence and respect to the closest thing we, as American citizens, have to sacred lands. Our national parks are places of recognition. When I see a mountain lion's tracks on pink sand in the desert, I am both predator and prey. When I see the elusive Everglade kite hovering above the sawgrass, I am the manifestation of hope and survival. And when I visit the Women's Rights National Historical Park in Seneca Falls, New York, and listen to Sojourner Truth's speech, Ain't I a Woman, her voice becomes the voice I want to cultivate in the name of courage. We are at a crossroads. We can continue on the path we have been on in this nation that privileges profit over people and land, Or we can unite as citizens with a common cause, the health and wealth of the earth that sustains us. If we cannot commit to this kind of fundamental shift in our relationship to people and place, then democracy becomes another myth perpetuated by those in power who care only about themselves. 
Good place to to leave it. Uh, Terry Tempest Williams reading from her latest book, The Hour of Land. Subtitle is A Personal Topography of America's National Parks. And she has joined us from KUR Studios in Salt Lake City. Terry Tempest Williams, a pleasure as always. Thank you. Tom Williams, thank you. And I just appreciate Access Utah. We listen to it every day and uh, it keeps us in touch. So bless you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, the website, uh, we're, well, we're checking out as well as coyoteclan.com. Uh, coming up tomorrow, very interesting uh, book. It's, it's actually the entire issue of Bloomberg Business Week, but it's book length. Paul Ford, What is Code? It's a primer that not only teaches how computers process code, but it's about the culture of coders. I found it very interesting, uh, and I hope you will as well. We're going to talk with Paul Ford tomorrow in the program. Thanks for listening today. Hey, what's up? I'm Shad. New York Times fashion photographer Bill Cunningham died over the weekend at age 87. Next time on Q, we'll look at his devotion to journalistic integrity in a media world where editorial and advertising often blur. That's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. Today at 1, right here on Utah Public Radio. I'm Robin Young. There are now many survivors of America's mass shootings, and Orlando opened old wounds. There's constantly reminders for everybody who survives one of these things to deal with, but at the same time, I think uh, focusing on that you're here. So many of the people that have died in these shootings probably would trade places for you in a heartbeat. Next time, here and now. Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.